Hello, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. Uh, I am not a redheaded stepchild, but I am Andy Boel, and I am just coming to you at the beginning of the podcast to uh, clarify a couple of things. Um, the first, the first four minutes of today's episode were horribly distorted in some way that was just unfixable so i'm coming in with a little bit of a preamble instead of that um the good news is the rest of the podcast um the rest of the episode is fine and good and has the incomparable stephanie johnson whom you are so used to hearing do this intro the other thing to know is we are obviously not reviewing the 1980s garbage fire that is masters of the universe. Uh, that was what we rolled at the end of the last episode. But when time came to actually try and watch it, we realized it was hiding behind a paywall and not just the Amazon rental kind that we're used to paying, but a, Hey, get a subscription to Cinemax kind. And we decided that wasn't going to be our night. So we re-rolled on the spot and instead we uh, landed on, you know, one of my favorite science fiction movies and we'll discuss at length an incredibly important science fiction movie, 1982's Ridley Scott directed Blade Runner. So without any further ado, uh, really, fortunately, you didn't miss much in the first opening couple of minutes. You'll hear the very, very end of the icky distortion effect as we go on in the next couple seconds here. But the rest of the episode is fine, and we really hope you enjoy. Of the film that Ridley Scott like gave his direct blessing to and said, this is the movie I meant to put out there. Mm. for all the good and bad that that entails no i really i enjoyed it i think um is interesting because i know a lot of people who have seen other cuts of the movie and have said like oh i ended up enjoying it less and i'm sitting here wondering how much better of an experience i had because i watched mm -hmm. the ridley scott's esau version of like you have my blessing <laughs> sure sorry that's a random old testament reference that no one will get but me but it felt so much cleaner and i really right. really enjoyed that and i i think that's to be expected this was the one that i mean if nothing else there had been six versions of the film for the director to then compare against and be like no that's not really what i was trying to say I'll tell you, the big thing you missed is uh, Deckard narrating over the entire film. Oh, fuck that. I would have hated that. And people did. Well, I would imagine, I would imagine so, because it's, hmm, this isn't a movie where I want to have my hand held. Right, which again leads back to studios being like, this is way too complex and like hard to understand. And we don't trust that audiences will get it. So we need Harrison Ford to like say everything that's happening and why it's happening. It's so funny. There was one point halfway through where you paused it and you looked at me and you were like, I know it's your first time seeing this. Are you fall And not in a condescending way. I do want to point out, but like you wanted to check in on me and make sure. And I was like, Oh, I intrinsically get this. What does this say about me? 
that you've been doing this podcast for the exact right amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> but to rein it back in real quick, if in case somehow you've missed it and you've never seen it and you're hearing about it through our show for the first time, first of all, I implore you to watch this movie if you are at all a sci-fi fan. But Blade Runner is the story of Detective Rick Deckard. Set in a cyberpunk L.A., Deckard is the titular Blade Runner, a special form of cop who exclusively hunts down rogue human-like androids referred to as replicants. On the trail of a pack of renegade replicants, led by the cunning Roy Batty, Deckard finds himself falling in love with Rachel, a replicant who does not know that she is one, awakening both in him and the audience... What exactly is the difference between being a human being and an artificial one? AKA everything I love. And also everything I love. Because, like, you can't even explain this movie without getting into some, like, hard sci-fi. Mm. Like, we have androids, but we don't call them androids. And also they're basically human, except we call them replicants. Mm-hmm. And I know you said this is based on a book by Philip K. Dick called... Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Okay. I've never read it. Have you? I've never read it. I do understand that it is essentially the same plot. Like, this isn't a thing where they just take the title and completely rewrite it. Like, Rick Deckard is a character in the book. Um, But also, I read the novelization of Starship Troopers in high school. And while that is the same basic plot, it is still nothing like the movie. So there's there's room for differences to be had, of course. Well, the reason I bring that up is um, normally we give a reading recommendation. And while you said while we were watching this, you were like, oh, yeah, it's it's a book. So our reading rec will be really easy. But the more I read it, the more I thought of the Ugly series by Scott Westerfield. Um, which is relatively similar in that it's dystopian and it's a society of people who have cosmetic surgeries to have parts of their brains removed Mm. so that they're not thinking and they're not questioning society. But then it very much examines that caste system of people who can't afford to have that surgery done and how they're less than human. And it really examines that whole thought of, like, what is human, what is not. And this movie really grapples with that idea that there's no real difference between the replicants and the humans. Right. In a really lovely way. Yeah. The only difference is the one that is, like, put in the replicants of it's a crucial plot element that they only have a four-year lifespan. But even then, like, when you get past the details of that, it's the same thing. It's that neither being is immortal and wishes they could be, or at the very least doesn't want to die when they have to. And that point is really well made. We come across a character named JF who has Methuselah syndrome. And because he is outwardly 25 but looks like a 60 year old man it's along the same lines as like no this happens to humans too yeah humans also degrade at way too fast of a rate 
Yeah, so this, I think you said afterwards that this made your brain shiny. Yeah. And I think that's appropriate. This is a, this is a very hard sci-fi and, and like, this, the themes of this film are, are hard and something to really wrap your brain around in the way that a lot of, like, 80s science fiction necessarily isn't and wasn't even trying to be. Sure. Um, so to get into it, uh, this is the third film from Sir Ridley Scott. Sir, he was knighted? He was knighted. Oh, okay. Because I didn't know the Scott brothers were English, but they are. Wait, which other? What is the other Scott? Tony Scott, director of The Hunger. I give up. I want to go home now. <laughs> I mean, but I think Fairly Ridley is the uh, the bigger name out of the two of them. It's just funny that... Like, that's not even a returning to cult fiction. That's a down-the-street waving at cult fiction. Like... I love that, though, because I love that one of them went on to, like, direct Alien and some of the most well-known movies of our time. And then one of them is like, no, no, it's cool. I've got my, like, tiny little indie vampire black-and-white movie. But I got Christopher Walken. Well, he also went on to direct Top Gun, if I remember, so like... Oh, then he never mind, he's fine. (laughs) No, both the Scott brothers did fine for themselves. (laughs) Uh, But what I want to highlight is, like, this is very, very, very early in Ridley Scott's career. He did a movie called The Duelists, which I've never seen and understand to be fine. And then back-to-back, he does Alien in 1979... And Blade Runner in 1982. Okay, so I had my order reversed, but that makes sense. Right, and creates two foundational science fiction films. um, And that just catapults him into the pantheon of, like, all-time greatest directors. And there's there are some damn fine Ridley Scott movies to go on. We we talked about like Gladiator, mm-hmm. um, and just like the man has a good career. But I would argue he has he has been writing the coattails for the past couple of years that started when he made this forty years ago. So he's George R. R. Martining it, where it's basically like my fame has gotten out of control, and now I'm just. A little bit, yeah. I, I, I can see the comparison in that, like, both of them were some of the best in their field, and then just time passes them by as it does us all to the point where, like, the past couple of films Ridley Scott has made have been, like, crap. Aww. Like, at, at time of recording, I have not seen The Last Duel, and I've heard that's really good, but, like, he's got some stinkers in there. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. We had a whole discussion about how I didn't realize half of the movies that Ridley Scott has done I've actually ended up loving. Right. But then also you named a couple of the others, and I was like, I haven't even heard of that. Right, so hits and misses. Yeah. Um, But, like, the thing is, at the end of the day, he will always be the guy who gave us Alien and Blade Runner. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. And so, you know, some some minor criticism, minor criticism, shit talking, or really Scott aside, I'm going to get this out of the way. 
I don't think it can be overstated just how monumentally influential Blade Runner is. And I would argue, and I would get into arguments online, if anyone wants to have them, that this is maybe the single most important science fiction ever made since silent films like Metropolis and A Trip to the Moon. Don't get home fights online. Don't be that guy. Don't be that white guy online, Andy. That's fair. (laughs) Don't be that Ridley Scott fanboy online. Having not showered for three days, Cheeto dust in his beard. I've been out of college for way too long to be that Ridley Scott fanboy, though. If I were that film school fanboy, it would be of the Ridley Scott variety as opposed to the Quentin Tarantino. You know what? I will accept that. And I certainly understand why. I mean, we, after this, watched the Alien trailer and the soundtrack that comes with it is about as identifiable as the Jaws soundtrack. It's, Mm. you know, screeching violins. And it's the same kind of concept of like that two note waving and receiving. Yeah. So I definitely get the man's influence for sure. It reminds me a lot of how there was one time a friend showed me Star Trek and she's like, I don't care if you like it. I don't care if you hate it, but you need to watch Star Trek because Star Trek started all of these tropes. Yeah. And I feel like maybe Blade Runner did it for movies. Yes, certainly. Like the thing I I would posit is Blade Runner invented a Mm subgenre. Blade Runner truly invented cyberpunk as we know it. Interesting. Um, and that's gone on to be like its its, ho- its own thing. And, you know, the, all of the things about cyberpunk is an iconic, like, visual style, but, like, usually a dated visual style. Like, it's clearly the future, but somehow everything still looks like it's in the 80s at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's one of the tenets, which, yeah, this movie is, like, dripping with that. And the other thing is incredibly complex questions on humanism. And blurring the line between man and machine, which we've already talked and are going to talk more about, about how integral that is to this movie. But like another not quite callback is pointing out that Blade Runner directly influenced Ghost in the Shell, which we watched forever ago on the show. Oh my God. Back in the day. Yeah, that was like episode 10 or something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, directly influences ghost in the shell which then goes on to directly influence action anime science fiction anime anime in america like this this touches on movies like gattaca and dark city and the matrix and like just invents a genre that tv shows and video games then cling to and you have Blade Runner, and if we want to take this a step farther, do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and Philip K. Dick, but because that's a book and it's not visual, I am going to put it on Blade Runner Mm. as the foundational cornerstone of what this thing is. This dictates so much visual style and, like, story structure And this is kind of me getting out of the soapbox, but I would say this is 
one of the single most important pieces of pop culture to ever exist. At least, I'll, I'll quantify, at least science fiction pop culture. Well, I mean, Harrison Ford certainly has a shorthand for important science fiction. Yes. Because half before we even saw him and I saw his name on the title card, I was just like, does... Does Harrison Ford have a hard-on for science fiction? Like, is that what he just, like, wants to do forever and ever and ever? And the funny thing is, I know from interviews of the man that he hates science fiction. <laughs> he thought Star Wars was stupid. He only came back for the last one because they were going to kill him. You know, fair if you're tired of playing a character. That's what you do. Yeah. And I, I get it. I get that it's a hard world to play in because often you're playing off of CGI or often you're playing off of really in-depth concepts that are hard to act with. So, like, I imagine it would be hard to act with I don't know if I'm human or I'm a replicant because at the end of the movie, it's not known if right. Decker is or isn't, despite the fact that I turned to you halfway through the movie and said... He's a replicant, and if he's not, I'm going to throw things. And I said, okay, and we will touch on that. <laughs> but I think there is something so difficult to wrapping that concept of, okay, you have to act towards this ambiguity, and you as an actor have to either make a choice in your head, or you have to act like you don't know. Well, especially for a certain school of actor, like, I remember the, the Uta Hagen technique. And for those of you who don't know, Uta Hagen is like a famous, like, formulator of, of how you act. Like, she invents a methodology for how to act. And it's real big. Why are you laughing? Her name is Uta Hagen. Yeah. No, it, I took theater history as a sophomore in college and remember Uta Hagen and I like could not keep my face straight. So when you just brought that up, I was like, oh my God, this is a full circle. Perfect. <laughs> sorry, sorry, please go on. No, Uta Hagen. Well, so the thing, a, a big thing about Uta Hagen is like live in the character, draw on your own personal experiences if your character is sipping a cup of coffee, think about when you've sipped coffee and how that's made you feel. And that hits a brick wall when the material you're given is, okay, this person who is a robot just shot this other robot in the back of the head and saved your life doing it. Remember, draw on your own experiences of the time one robot chased you through a hotel naked and screaming and made a lot of like homoerotic comments at you <laughs> and literally pushed his head through a very vaginal shaped hole in the wall such that you look like a baby crowning <laughs> which this movie is not subtle in some of its visual cues there is a lot of reproduction and birth and pushing yeah. that happens. And, and that kind of makes sense when it's all about life. Yeah. So like, I'm okay with that Ridley Scott, but also like the climax of this film has a lot of like 
not even thinly veiled homoeroticism. Again, the big bad gets in, down into his underwear for no discernible reason and howls like a wolf and chases our hero character. And then like has a lot of lines like he breaks his finger and then tells him, oh, come on, can't you get it up? Just shoot straight. It was at that point that I was like, and this is the this is the version of the film you like kissed on the forehead and gave your blessing, Ridley Scott. You okay? We need to talk about how your time in the early eighties went. I need the old Blade Runner. I need your magic. I think it was a comment that you made while we were watching it, where you said something about if this was made 10 years earlier or 30 years later, yeah. Roy Batty would have been absolutely buck-ass naked. Yep. And it makes me think of um, 28 Days Later, mm -hmm. where so much of the movie is men running around nude. Yeah. Just for lulz reasons. For shock value, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking about this movie in conversation with 28 Days Later, and I'm like, oh. Oh, it makes so much sense that at the end of the world, people are losing their goddamn minds and shredding clothing and shredding societal beliefs because mm -hmm. what is humanity anyways if you can't attain it just by, you know, bleeding, cursing, feeling pain, having emotions? Oh, okay. So you just turned around and made it like completely make sense now. Especially thinking about how, like, those are the final moments of Roy Batty's life before he dies of robot old age. And that's also after he has tried and failed to achieve longer life by any means necessary. Oh, I see you. That's brilliant. No, I love that. Well, and I think there's, like, something to that idea that, like, clothing the whole concept of like clothing makes the man but in various retellings of beauty and the beast there is a lot of conversation about why is the beast wearing clothes uh rose mckinley wrote a really beautiful retelling of beauty and the beast um just called beauty and it's the same concept but at one point beauty asked the beast why are you wearing clothes i don't understand decency isn't really appropriate and he said when you have humanity stripped from you you cling to any source of it that you can sure hence roy wearing ray ray roy 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 cone ray batty same thing in my head <laughs> well they're, except they're both roy it's roy roy cone and roy batty you just said ray no i said roy i've had bourbon continue <laughs> Um, no, so, like, the thing is, like, this is a beautiful film, and there's so much, like, you can talk about intellectually in this film, but I also want to talk about how about 30 minutes into the movie, you were like, this is so fascinating, and, like, I want to know everything about the planet that they're on, and I went, oh, that's brilliant. This is set in the sci-fi dystopia of 2019 Los Angeles. Why is there no sun then? Why is it raining all the time? Do you know how often it rains in LA? Because that's what Ridley Scott figured we'd do to the environment in the next 27 years. 
Oh, Ridley, honey, give us at least another 20. We haven't ripped the hole through the entire ozone, just the ozone's asshole. Oh. <laughs> but, I mean, that does make sense. But did you ever notice with cyberpunk movies, it's, like, always fucking raining? Because of this one, yes! <laughs> That's why! Well, and that makes sense because, like, this movie is so iconic for all of the rain hitting the hood of Deckard's car and yeah. that being kind of a constant background. So it makes sense that it's like, oh, no, this is how you do cyberpunk now. Well, yeah. And let's like I this. So I want to give all the credit to, again, the visuals, like I said, mm -hmm. you know, the script is very good and it, it creates a lot of interesting questions. But this isn't cyberpunk without it taking place in the visual setting it does and just the entire like cultural melting pot and like the image of seeing a billboard through the smog and the rain and the light hitting both of those things and the blackness and the like everything's kind of dirty but it's inherently the future mm -hmm. that is the sweet visual deliciousness that this movie presents and, and credit where it's due. Um, I, I looked into it. The art director, the art director, a guy named David Snyder was nominated for an Oscar for his art direction. Interesting. But then you look at the rest of his career and it's not a lot of the same stuff, which uh, is the more interesting thing to me. Well, that what that tells me looking from a bird's eye view is that, Ridley Scott like choke hold yep. choke held this man up in his trailer and was like listen you're gonna do this to my movie and if you don't I know where you live exactly I think so <laughs> not to say that you know Ridley Scott is on the level of like the specters but at the same time well no he's he's not Kubrickian no but I will say one of the things I noticed as far as cyberpunk goes, and maybe this movie started it and maybe this has been hard-coded into science fiction for as long as science fiction has been visual, there is a lot of fetishization and borrowing from Asian cultures mm. that's so incredible incredibly subtle yeah but when you're looking for it stands out a lot so there is um the billboard that you're talking about that you see through the smog and the rain is of um a woman dressed up in geisha yeah costuming and then i immediately thought of serenity and firefly and um I mean, I know Ghost in the Shell is made by Japanese creators, so it doesn't bother me as much mm. for it to have a Japanese nod. But I'm thinking about all the other sci-fi movies where there was just, like, randomly a heavy Asian influence that's not explained in any way. And, you know, I do think that it starts here and then just sort of becomes a repeating cycle. And I, I can't understand the logic in as much as... You know, again, Ridley Scott was guessing a lot of things about the future. And one thing he clearly just decided he was going to take a guess on was, okay, the West Coast melting pot is going to 
continue to evolve in such a way where you're going to wind up having this heavy Asian, Chinese, Japanese influence in day-to-day American society. And in fairness, I mean, he was, he was, that was one of the things he got right. Um, and so then everybody goes, holy shit, Blade, Blade Runner was so cool. Oh my God, let's, we, we gotta like evoke the visual style. So let's throw in some kanji because kanji looks cool. I mean, if you want to go that far, like the reason lightsabers exist is because George Lucas likes samurai movies. So you get this repeating cycle of visual motif. You know, it, it literally is like repeating back onto itself, going back into Ghost of the Shell. Because then you have a bunch of people copying Ghost of the Shell. And yeah, it's like it is it is a fingerprint of what this genre is, is you include this Western Asian influence. So because I'm a brand nerd, <laughs> what year did Star Wars come out? Like the first Star Wars? 1974? Do you know who celebrates their birthday in 1975? Uh, no. Hello Kitty. And Sanrio. Huh. Which then proceeded to rapidly make its way over to... American and European cultures in the early 80s. Fascinating. Okay. So just because my brain works in like, okay, this brand was premiered at this time. This is what was going on in like, in the lower culture. Because, you know, the whole idea of higher culture is that it borrows and is influenced by what is going on in just the zeitgeist. And so I'm imagining there's already this, because I knew in the 80s there was this idea of like, oh yeah, Japan is so cool and kind of American teen girls were co-opting a lot of Japanese culture. Mm -hmm. And so while we were talking about this, I was like, hold on, I wonder when Hello Kitty was started. I love to give that inspiration (laughs) for you. Uh, But with that said, like, did you catch all of the, like, crazy product placement within Blade Runner itself? Right, because we have Coke. Yep. Um, there was... Coke's the big one. Pan Am, which is a, oh, yeah. like, famously defunct travel company, mm-hmm. as prominently displayed. Um, I remember reading that Sing Sao Beer, which is a, uh, I want to say, Chinese beer pulled out at the last second. Oh, interesting. Like, they were like, no, this is weird, and we don't want our beer associated with this. <laughs> interesting, because you know Ridley Scott fanboys would be like, oh, I only drink Sansau beer. Right. From instead, my mom's basement. <laughs> instead, now they just drink Coke. Well, you know, what else pairs well with Red Bull and vodka? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I feel like I'm being way salty. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please. No, I mean, you know, it's we got to take the piss out of this movie where we can. Um, just to touch on maybe the final in Asian influence, but also taking the piss. 
probably the one way this movie super didn't age well. Social justice, one, two, three. I wanna be PC. It's just the way to be for me and you. Is a blatant and obvious and direct stereotypical Chinese accent. Mm, that's you, not cute. You have the one moment where um, Deckard is just eating lunch at this like noodle cart and the chef calls him a braid runner. And it's like, oh. That's, that's. You didn't need that. You didn't need to go there, Blade Runner. Or me. Or you. <laughs> or you. Or you. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but I, I agree. I also think there is, there is a little. <sighs> the two female characters we have being replicants isn't a great look. Three, yeah, really. Because there's the two female replicants and then Rachel, who is also a replicant. Well, there's Pris, who's the one who, like, airbrushes her eyes black. Yes. And then there's Zora, who's the one with the snake. Yes. Yes, I forgot about Snake Lady. Zora. I forgot Look about at, Zora. I'm, I'm proud of you for forgetting the snake one. And it just, like, not registering in a fear capacity to the point where you just completely forget about it. Maybe I've blocked it out. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of things I wish I had blocked out, there's the fucking blue filter on this movie. (laughs) And it is so painful. (laughs) Which is interesting to me to hear you bring that up. I don't think I notice it. I mean, that's fair. I might only notice it because I'm watching the L word right now. So, um, Well, maybe it's a Los Angeles thing then. Both both take place in Los Angeles. <laughs> I, 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 okay, but now I'm just picturing all of the characters from the L word in like ridley scott universe and it just isn't going well in my brain no i i don't think any of them would do very well but i think jenny is a replicant this is very niche yeah fair let's move on (laughs) um something that's not niche i i want to talk like at the core of the movie besides all the visual stuff i've gushed about the reason i think the film works is it is a pulpy, noir, detective film. That's yeah. why they thought they could get away with Harrison Ford narrating it like it was a noir detective movie. Because that's the character he plays. And I think Deckard is a interesting and good character. He kind of, he kind of doesn't do a lot. Mm-hmm. But the things you do see him do... You sit there and go, oh, holy shit, he is a great detective. Mm-hmm. He finds a scale at a crime scene, goes, who would know what this is? Oh, the woman who I know sells fish. And she's like, no, it's not a fish scale, it's a snake scale. That guy sells snakes. And just, I love the sequences where we actually see Deckard doing detective work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just appreciate them giving us something to actively like about our hero character besides the fact that he's Harrison Ford. And I appreciate that too, that it's not 
we keep saying it's hard sci-fi, it's hard sci-fi, but it's sci-fi and noir and mystery and existential crisis all wrapped into one fun little ball. Yeah. And the fact that it's noir kind of makes it... I see why they did that because it's more approachable. Yeah. Because everyone knows that I saw a long-legged dame, she came out of the rain mm-hmm. trope from noirs. And then to stick it into a robot universe is to make the robot universe much more approachable. Right. You're building an entry point for the viewer so that it doesn't matter that the dame just so happens to be a robot. We can accept that she's a dame. Yeah. And the love interest character. Which I saw coming from a fucking mile away. <laughs> I'll give you that one. Um, I, I think one of the interesting things about Rachel is she only starts to act like a human after she accepts that she is a replicant. So you know I have a rant about this. Of course. But I love that you say that because Rachel acting more human is Rachel having messy emotions that aren't acceptable for a woman to have. Sure. So like Rachel having anger and having confusion and having denial all are very like non female emotions that society is allowing women to have. And so for her to, like, get mad and get confused and have desire, but have desire in a really complex way for this man who kind of fucking changed your entire life and is now thrusting you against the wall in a window and saying, you want it, is, like, it's messy and it's complicated Mm. and it's human. Yeah. And it creates the sympathetic attachment, not only for the character Deckard, but for the audience. Yeah. And I think all of the replicants do that to one degree or another. If we can pivot a little more broadly into the replicant characters, like the thing about them is at the end of the day, they're essentially just people who would prefer to not be dying soon, please. But if you look into that, like, it's a throwaway line in the beginning of the film just to, like, explain what a replicant is. But it basically just says, the the movie says something along the lines of, like, yeah, we've been able to create these people and we send them to the worst locations in space and we give them the worst jobs. Replicants are a manufactured uh, lower class of human. Mm Mm-hmm. And that is one of the most, like, that is a trope played to death in sci-fi. And, like, Isaac Asimov and iRobot mess with that a lot. And, like, AI as humanity needing rights is a thing that's been played a whole bunch of times. But there's something so predictable in a way I really like about, like, oh, yeah, no, eventually humanity would move past racism by inventing a new kind of racism Mm -hmm. by inventing speciesism especially then to 
entertain it in a sense of we're so different from them we push them to another planet and tell them they can't come here right so there's a lot of commentary about like boundaries and borders and what's allowable that's a really interesting conversation with you know roughly 2017 america yeah i mean heck with 2022 america and 1982 America. And 1982 America, but especially 2019 America, because I'm trying to, you know, if it's in 2019 LA, 2019 was just about when Trump was trying to, like, give final death rattles to his wall. Yeah. Just, you know, about 200 miles south of LA. Sure. Yeah, Absolutely. So it's it's politically interesting as well. Well, and the replicants just lead themselves so nicely to that. There's so much any otherism you can come up with. Yeah. You can then assign onto the replicants. It's a racial thing. Coming out in 1982, it's an AIDS allegory. Hey, I just want to live more than four years. Yeah, we finished watching this and um, I was like, oh, it's so, you know, there's all of this conversation about masking. And I was like, oh, it's, you know, it's a, a neural divergent story. Sure. And I think I didn't say that right away, though. I said masking and you were like, oh, yeah, it is about the AIDS epidemic. And I was like, oh, yeah, it is about the AIDS epidemic. <laughs> Just like all movies from the 80s secretly kind of were. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with Hollywood. Yeah. I would imagine a, a lot of people got affected with that so deeply. Yeah. And I don't think Ridley Scott was immune in any way, shape, or form. No, I'm, I'm sure not. And anybody working on it, like, there's just, the DNA is in there somehow to think on these things at the same time of thinking of these like crazy sci-fi concepts. Mm -hmm. I think the replicants work as such a fascinating antagonistic force because they are inherently relatable. At the end of the day, they would just prefer not to be a manufactured slave class and not have a built-in four-year lifespan mm -hmm. and are willing to do anything and do evil quote-unquote to try and make that happen but like that's that's anybody Hum humans go to great and terrible lengths just to try and prolong their own lifespan or do stupid shit yeah or do stupid shit or commit crimes and like the very thing that everybody then tries to, like, call the replicants out for is the thing that makes them the most human. Almost like it's really just the humans are scared of accepting this other being as equally valid to them. Even the um, maker of all of the replicants says at one point when Roy kind of shares his grievances with him he's finally met him and he's like holding him in his arms and he's like why didn't you give me more time and he's like oh you want to talk about the facts of life well 
this is just what happens. Yeah. I also don't want to die when I'm going to die, so. So, lulls. Yeah, it's never, I I don't think it's ever adequately explained why four years. I don't think it's ever adequately explained on if that's an optional thing or not. You know, in that conversation with Tyrell, Roy asks like, okay, is there any medical shit you can do to me? And the only thing Tyrell says is, well, no, once the DNA is sequenced, like, you cannot alter it. But that's not the same thing as we can alter the D- we can sequence the DNA differently in the first place to then manufacture new life. Yeah. Uh, but I want to talk about that moment just real quick and just highlight it. Roy Batty, in the span of five minutes, outsmarts his father slash God with the chess stuff meets father God is let down by father God and then murders father God. And then murders father God's son allegory or a strange son allegory. And the movie kind of declines from there, not in quality, but in the sense of like, after that, it's like death, 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 right. death. Is the echoing denouement of just, well, everything is broken now. Yeah, and it, it really is like, it is Tyrell's admission to the desperate man there's nothing to be done that kicks off the movie starting its bloody final circle. Because mm-hmm. you're right. We get Tyrell and JR both are murdered by Roy. And then within five minutes, Pris, the airbrushed replicant, gets shot down by Deckard. And then we have like five, ten minutes of climax sequence before Roy himself becomes what we affectionately referred to as nihilistic robo-Christ. Mm-hmm. Pierces his own damn hand. Pierces his own hand, finds a dove somewhere. For reasons. <laughs> Just cause. And like we said, like, strips down because nothing matters and he's not human anymore. And tries his absolute damnedest to kill Deckard until the final moment where he sacrifices himself to save Deckard's life. There is beauty in there. I I set it up with a punchline and with like joking about the funny nickname, but there is something so intrinsically powerful about the last. 30 seconds of Roy Batty's life Mm. and the sacrifice and the willingness in the final moment when he is going to die, there is nothing anyone can do. He is going to die in the next couple seconds. So it doesn't matter anymore. There is no reason to let Deckard fall to his death. Roy grabs him and saves him and pulls him up off the balcony because In his dying moments, 
he chooses compassion. Still effectively becoming more human than the humans that murder. I love that you read that as compassion. Oh, now I want to know what you read it as. I read it as him needing someone to witness him dying. Ah, that also... Yeah, okay. Because he has his whole talk about, like, all the things he's seen. And he sits there and dies in front of Harrison Ford and you're kind of I think that's the moment that I became convinced that Deckard is a replicant mm-hmm. because he is crying and why would he be crying if he wasn't a replicant like it doesn't make emotional sense unless he's having like a PTSD response where he's like oh my god thank god i'm alive which is also fair i i see that and i actually prefer to then add a more optimistic hat to your optimistic hat there i think it's entirely possible that roy could affect him to the point of mourning in those final moments. I mean, it's probably a mixture of both. It's probably the adrenal surge of my hand slipped, I was going to die, and Roy's final moments. But mm. I like that. I like that a lot. Speaking of liking that a lot, um, can we talk about quotes for the movie? Sure. We can talk about quotes for the movie. I'm going to let you go first. Well, yeah. So speaking of Roy Batty's death, It leads to what is maybe my favorite quote in all of cinema. And we've talked around it, and I would like to just read it in its entirety. Yeah, go ahead. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watch sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. Time to die. And he does. And that just is a perfect story moment. This man who has seen the impossible describes the impossible. You don't need to know what a sea beam is. You don't need to know what the Tannhauser gate looks like, if it's a space dock or what. He's seen sea beams glitter in the dark past the Tannhauser gate. He has seen something you never will. And you know what? I think you're... I. I think you're absolutely right as to that's the reason why he saves Deckard so that these tears might not be lost in rain at least in some way someone hears this was Roy Batty's life and it is a vocal tombstone for himself 
Um, so <laughs> that is my quote. That is that is probably my favorite quote in cinema, and that's saying something. But I love that. I um, time to die is kind of Roy's uh, his refrain. Yeah. And even before we got to that scene, there's another point where he says, wake up, time to die. And that was my quote because I was like, oh, that's so fucking weird. Who says that? And then to have it echoed again in the final act is really, really lovely. So I think I think that's perfect. I think those are... I love that our quotes echo each other. I very much do, too. Um, in, in talking about the movie, we talked very little about much of the actors aside from Harrison Ford. Rutger Hauer, who is the actor who plays Roy Batty, never does a role quite like this again. Mm-hmm. And like when he was writing his memoirs, said that this was his favorite role he ever performed. Roy Batty is one of the most complete and complex and sympathetic at the same time as being maniacal villains, I think, in sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it is touching and fitting to give him a moment there with quotes. You know what else is touching and fitting? Kevin Bacon? Presumably. No, oh, I'd like to touch and fit him. <laughs> So, so, would you like to go first? I surely can. So I would like to state that, obviously, you go with Harrison Ford. Do you? I feel like you do. Okay. Because he was with Kathy Allen in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm-hmm. who was in Animal House with Kevin Bacon. Oh, shit. That's right. Okay. So. It is Kathy Allen, isn't it? It is Kathy Allen. All right. Well, I don't think you obviously go with Harrison Ford. Who did you go with? So, so like I just said, I think maybe my favorite actor in this movie is Rutger Hauer. Okay. Rutger Hauer was in The Right with Toby Jones, who was then in Frost Nixon with Kevin Uh, Bacon. Okay. Sweet, we tied. Yeah, I'm happy with it. Yeah, awesome. Will we tie with our Oscars? I sure don't know. Um, would you like to go first for Oscars? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and go first. Um, just because I think this is the other like conversation point. I would like to give Blade Runner the Oscar for biggest fuck you retcon. Oh. And I mean the biggest. Oh. So you've talked about it yourself. We've we've already talked about it in the show. Is Deckard a replicant? Yes, or else I throw things. Right. And so I know you have an answer. The the point of asking the question is like what the movie wants to lead you with. And every cut of the movie, it, it, it tries to make that ambiguous. Um, and the question drove sci-fi nerds nuts for over 30 years. And... I want to say you're right, because there is overwhelming evidence to insinuate that Deckard is a replicant. 
most of it is uh, related to the character Gaff, who we didn't even get to talk about, but is Edward James Olmos just dripping with style. Um, but there's the moment where after Roy dies, Gaff just turns out to fucking be there. And he says, you've done a man's job now, just to imply everything in Deckard's life was not a man's job. Um, he also has the moment where he leaves behind in Deckard's apartment a origami statue of a unicorn when we, the audience, know that Deckard dreams about unicorns. And so there's all of this overwhelming evidence that Deckard is a replicant, but it's never confirmed. Ridley Scott, in interviews, goes, yes, Deckard's a replicant. Harrison Ford, in interviews, goes, no, Deckard is not a replicant. That ruins the ending of the movie. Like, me and Ridley talked about this. It is a point of contention. And in the sequel, Blade Runner 2049, which Ridley Scott produced, it takes place 30 years later, and Deckard is alive. So by the very fact that he is alive... And the movie then goes on to confirm this. Rick Deckard is human by the canon of the movie. I'm now going to dodge and duck under the table. <laughs> Stephanie is looking for something to throw. I'm just mad because why? Why would you throw away that textual brilliance? And I don't have a good answer. Um, in researching this, Rooker Hauer, his two cents was... If, if Deckard is a human, then the ending loses something because it's not man versus machine. Yeah. But also, it's never really a fight in the first place. It's more of a chase than anything. It's so funny you say that because I was trying to identify who the antagonist is in this movie. And it's just time and situation. Yeah. No one's a bad guy in this movie even though the entirety of this podcast we've been saying oh yeah Roy Batty the the big bad but he's not I mean yes he absolutely murders people but he's not the bad he's just a resource of bad he is somebody put into a desperate situation he is somebody who has three days to live from the moment we see him. And as this clock in the back of his head counting down those three days and the more and more time goes on, just the more like he's got this thing blaring in the back of his mind saying, you are going to die. And it causes him to do what he does. Woof. 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 Is your Oscar for the biggest woof. Well, kind of. Um, my Oscar for this movie is best visual representation for unspoken lines. Mm. So there is so much visual imagery in this movie that says so much without saying anything. So the first time I noticed it is when JF is talking about talking to the replicants mm. um pris and roy and saying there's a little bit of me in you and at that same time a cuckoo clock goes up goes off in the background kind of implying that okay this person is fucking psycho sure but then even more um really pertinent is the scene where 
Roy faces off with Tyrell, and there's candles in the background. And the candles start the scene really tall, and throughout the scene they get shorter and shorter and shorter. Mm -hmm. And just that attention to detail is so perfect. Yeah. So, so, so perfect, and it's really lovely to see. I completely agree. You know, we talked about it at the beginning, like, say what you will about late stage Ridley Scott. Early stage Ridley Scott is a master and knows exactly what he's doing, whether mm -hmm. studio executives uh, <laughs> let him do it or not. Mm -hmm. um, so to wrap up, I just want to ask, is this is Blade Runner cult? How much money did it make? Not as much as it spent. Blade Runner had an estimated budget of $28 million and grossed 32. Yikes. So again, not a bomb, but the technical not a successful movie. Yeah, no. Um, I, I also know like... So again, the original cut, which is not technically what we saw, it had stuff like the narration and, and some scenes were different, was massively polarizing to audiences and, and sure. film critics. Basically, people either adored it and called it high art or said it was just confusing, slow, like not at all what I thought this was going to be. Um, so, you know, in incredibly divisive. But, you know, it's quotable, it's iconic in ways we've talked of ad nauseum, it's important. And I know we've talked about this on other films. Being important does not mean something is not cult. Yeah. So I, I think that this manages to be that. Plus, any movie where there's seven theatrical versions of something, with the exception of Star Wars, because George Lucas wanted to put in another CGI do-back in the Tatooine scene, any other movie that does not do that is cult by definition of, like, no, the director and the studio fought each other repeatedly <laughs> to make this movie. Well, it makes me think of Brazil, how, like, Terry Gillum was like, no, that was not what I wanted to do. How fucking dare you? Yep. And I think there's something, too, like, you can't say a movie isn't cult if there has been a multiple decade-long argument about it. Right. I'm think I we talked about Christopher Nolan right after this and about how Inception, like, has that same long, ongoing, is it a dream, is it real argument. Mm -hmm. And I think... Movies that have that kind of stay with you power where you fight about it for years and years and years afterwards are cult. Like you can't, you can't rid that. No, I completely agree. You can only ridley Scott it. Pew, 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 pew. Ooh. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, on every episode of Cult Fiction, um, <laughs> You know, not on every episode of Cult Fiction does one of us lay down a truly awful pun like that. <sighs> but what always happens on an episode is we turn to the Hollywood crypt to pick out our next movie for us. And it does that through the application of a random number generator. 
I have a list of 284 certified, well, maybe not certified, that's the whole point of the show, 284 cult films, and I am rolling that list, and The Crypt wants us to watch number 121. 121, sticking into the 80s, as so many cult films are. But I'm going to be really shocked if we have anything to compare it to. Uh, number 200 and number 121 is the 1984 coming of age action sports film, The Karate Kid. Okay. You are not a millennial if you didn't try to do a crane kick. Yeah. Yeah. Or when you're washing cars, do like a wax on, wax off scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I am so stoked. I can't remember the last time I watched this movie. I was a young teenager. Yeah, same, I think. I think I was like 11, maybe. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. Yes. Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow rate or review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when it becomes blatantly obvious neither one of us has seen Cobra Kai (laughs) as we watch John Alvidson's The Karate Kid. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Boel.